Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the Randomly Generated History Club. Hello. Hello. <laughs> you missed your cue. <laughs> and welcome to the Randomly Generated History Club, where three non-historians pick a year and I'm going to try to learn things about it. I'm Anna, and I'm here, as ever, with my two friends, Will and Ant. Now, now? Now. No, do go, it, do go, it now. Say it. Bonjour. Hello. <laughs> good job, good job. This week, we three kings are talking about the year 1505 and i'd like each of us to give mm. our three word preview of what we're discussing today will kilted wood violence oh that is a <laughs> amazing novel yeah i've a read romantic that one novel. that's a real bodice ripper <laughs> <laughs> bodice ripper and tiktok time <laughs> Are you filming this? I am filming this from okay. my TikTok. Yeah. Good. Uh, and my three words are lying pickle dealer. Oh, there's nothing worse. <laughs> there's nothing These are pickles. Worse. You know how hard it is to find an honest pickle dealer yeah. these days? These, these are just regular cucumbers. Yeah, as rare as hen's teeth, which I can also pickle. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Today, I'm talking about Amerigo Vespucci, or possibly Vespucci. Oh. There seems to be some disagreement. I have heard of this guy. Yes. What did he do? Uh, didn't sell pickles? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to his pickle dealings. Um, he may or may not be the reason that the Americas are named America. Uh, wow. That's it. That's where I've heard yeah. of him before. And just a disclaimer, I'm going to use America real fast and loose here, but I'm generally referring to the continents um, and also the country, which is not called America. Anyway, Amerigo Vespucci was born in Florence into a politically well-connected family, which of course means they knew... The Medici! Yay! <laughs> Hit the buzzer. Wow, wow. <laughs> uh, yep, he even worked for a sort of junior branch of the Medici family. Um 
1492, he moves to Seville, where he works as a ship chandler, who's somebody who sells things for ships. And uh, so he he provisions them. And obviously this is... Ropes. A lot of ropes. Sales. Pickles. Pickle. Oh, mm. Ooh, yes. we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, this is obviously the, the kind of like right in the heyday of the age of exploration. So there's lots and lots of ships to chandle. Um, <laughs> also, a couple of articles I read said that he was a pimp. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, like an actual pimp. <laughs> like an actual pimp, and I, it's just sort of like I don't. I mean, I, I guess. suppose that's another thing that you could furnish Channel. ships with, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's he, a, it's a certain type of pickle dealing. He is like very much in the hustle game. Yeah, you know? he's got his he's got his so many. He's um, got a lot of things avenues. going on. Yeah. yeah. So Amerigo Vespucci, pimp, Chandler. End of list. End of list. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also kind of a sailor, by which I mean he definitely went on at least one boat at at least one time and possibly to the New World. Okay. That's, <laughs> wow. a, that's a sailor to me. That's qualifies. <laughs> There's a huge amount of debate about how many voyages he actually went on. Consensus seems to be that he said he did four, but really he did two. Yeah. What, so two trips on a boat ever? Uh, two trips to the New World. Okay. Oh, is he came yeah. there and back again? Is that <laughs> oh, what it is? Yeah. maybe that. Oh, you've actually blown the lid off this whole thing. I think I've solved it, yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like he wasn't so much a sailor as ballast. Yeah. So, Who's just on the ship. Yeah. Well, it is really unclear what he did. Like, he wasn't the captain. He wasn't a trained sailor. Passenger um, he is the word pass- we're looking for. <laughs> 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 Looky Lou. Um, yeah, so the first voyage is one of the spurious ones and allegedly took place from 1497 to 98 there are a number of inconsistencies about it in a letter he wrote including one bit where he says they sailed northwest from honduras for 870 leagues which would have them sailing directly across mexico (laughs) which is a thing that is very difficult yes given the terrain (laughs) um voyages two and three are the ones that we are most certain about um he sails for Spain to go investigate some spots that Columbus talked about. And then he sails for Portugal, where he eventually reaches Brazil and maybe discovers the Amazon River. Enormous asterisk yeah. on all of that, most specifically the word discover. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, finally, the fourth voyage is another one of the alleged ones, which allegedly took place in 1503 to 1504, again for Portugal and again to Brazil. So he's a he's a navigator. He's been on some boats. And um, really, it seems that he's kind of a good self promoter. So he's writing these letters to various nobles in in Florence and, and elsewhere. And he's starting to get this reputation as an explorer, as a navigator, Um Having navigated four times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At most. Having navigated four times and um, only making one extreme whoopsie, which is trying to sail across Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> so his two most famous letters were published in 1503 and 1505. And as course, uh, of course, as you should guess by now, the 1505 letter is not 100% proven to be his or to be accurate, but it is the one that most directly leads to the name America. Okay, cool. It's called the Soderini letter, and it's Vespucci's account of the first voyage, which also may not have happened. So everything (laughs) is topsy-turvy. 
But in these letters, he uses the term new world, which makes him possibly the first person to state that the Americas were not actually India, as everybody, including Columbus, thought, um, but rather an entirely new landmass. New, again, only to Europeans. (laughs) Um, So the Soderini letter from 1505 eventually makes its way to a group of humanists in France, including two guys named Ringman and Waldseemuller, who publish a pamphlet called Introduction to Cosmography in 1507. Cosmography? Cosmography. Now, there's a field they don't teach too much <laughs> these really days. They really don't, yeah. That's good. That's a great word. What, what, what is cosmography? Uh, I'll fail this one. <laughs> <laughs> Having studied it. Physical cosmography deals with erosion. <laughs> Deposition. <laughs> in the cosmos. <laughs> Human cosmography deals with how humans interact at a societal level oh, I see, I see. in the cosmos. <laughs> a lot of oxbow lakes up in the cosmos, isn't there? <laughs> the Milky right. Way is actually just one giant one oxbow lake. One big alluvial plane. <laughs> That's right. Back to you, Anna. Good cosmographing, all of us. Uh, the pamphlet also included a world map. And in the preface to the pamphlet, one of the authors wrote, I see no reason why anyone could properly disapprove of a name derived from that of Amerigo, the discoverer, a man of sagacious genius. A suitable form would be Amerigue, meaning land of Amerigo, or America, since Europe and Asia have received women's names. So they Latinized and then feminized Amerigo. And And they put uh, his portrait on the map as well. And this does appear to be the first time that somebody called it. America. But what an incredible concept to think this one just yeah. absolute chancer yeah. has just put his name out there and said, yeah, we should call it after me and then got someone to agree. Well, and then- he didn't put it out there. They independently had read his letter and said, oh, well, this guy was the first to realize that it was the new world, so we should call it after him. In fact, it's almost certainly the truth that Vespucci didn't even know they'd done it because the maps didn't make it to Seville before he died, which was in 1512. Okay, okay. So, yeah, I mean, the map does go as viral as it's possible for a map to go in 1505, and the name starts catching on, and over the next couple of decades, America gets included on more and more maps, including a very influential one made by Mercator in 1538, him of the projections. West Wing episode of choice <laughs> i love that episode so good sidebar if any of our listeners also really geek out about map projections please email me uh, <laughs> um, and so yeah by that time sort of the early to mid 1500s it has stuck now we get to the controversies as i mentioned first of all vespucci probably didn't even know that he had been given this honor uh spain refused to accept the name america for two centuries because they thought that Columbus should get the credit and they were the ones who had bankrolled him. And it should be called Columbica. Yeah, yeah, or, you know, <laughs> Columbia, maybe. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's also a name of a country. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, did, yeah. they did get that little bit. Um, <laughs> and by the middle of the 1500s, the kind of public opinion has started to turn against this guy. And several centuries pass where he just has a really bad reputation as someone who stole Columbus's glory. Was uh, he st- wait. Okay, no, he was, sorry. He's, yeah, he was dead. dead. He's dead. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Dead, like, but, the, but the, like, the discourse rep- yeah, 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 is yeah, yeah, yeah. that the, he's a chancer who stole Columbus's glory. I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel bad for the guy because he, he's he, a self-promoter, he, but he didn't suggest it. 
Mm, fine line. Yeah, fine, fine line. line there, I think. Uh, it, this comes to a head in 1856 when the American writer Ralph Waldo Emerson called Vespucci a thief and a pickle dealer. <laughs> and when I read that, I thought maybe that was like an old timey expression for a charlatan or yeah. something like, ah, oh, he's a, a what a pickle dealer. See? Um, so I Googled it and all of the results are about Vespucci. <laughs> Every wow. single one of oh, them. Wow. He was literally just calling him a pickle dealer because he had provisioned the ships, but presumably with pickles. Why is that an insult? Things. Why is that a lowly thing? Is it <laughs> I pickle, don't know. Like, that's your job. Yeah, I think that, I think he maybe didn't mean it as a, maybe just kind of demeaning. Like as an honorary member of the Noble Guild of Picklers, <laughs> I think there's nothing wrong with yeah. being called a pickle dealer. No, I know. You should take yeah. it up with Ralph Waldo Emerson. And also as an honorary member of the, the Noble Guild of Pimps. <laughs> <laughs> Snoop yeah. Dogg, the chairman, is not going to be happy with the... Uh... <laughs> um, yeah, so you're both a bunch of pickle dealers. Uh, and I just briefly wanted to cover two additional theories for how America got the name, because there is still some debate. Yeah, uh, There is a mountain range in Nicaragua called the Amarisque Mountains, which is an uh, indigenous word. So it's possible that it turned into America from that. Yeah, yeah. And the other theory is that it's named for a guy named Richard Amerike, A-M-E-R-I-K-E, or Richard App Merrick, who was the sheriff of Bristol in the late 15th century. And the theory is that he was the owner of the ship that John Cabot used to sail to North America in 1497. And apparently there was a contemporary manuscript that talked about America, which would have been a decade before the Amerigo okay. map. But that manuscript was lost in a fire in Bristol. And there's also not really any evidence supporting the idea that um, Richard Amerike owned the ship. So maybe not that one. And then finally, two more really interesting facts that I had no idea about. In 1977, the World Council of Indigenous Peoples proposed using the term Abya Yala instead, which in the Kuna language, which is native to Panama, this means land in its full maturity or land of vital blood. Oh, how do you say that again? Abya? Abya Yala, A-B-Y-A-Y-A-L-A. It's a very sort of nice series. I know, I kind of like it. Yeah, Abya Yala. But I think we can all agree America, the country, is not in its full maturity. And then finally, several Northeastern Native American tribes refer to North America as Turtle Island. They do not. They do. Yeah, well, it's part of their um, uh, cosmography. No, it's part of their origin legend. Uh, there's like a turtle. Uh, it's it's like central to their origin. Isn't that factually incorrect? <laughs> These people's beliefs are factually incorrect. Well, okay. Yes. Hate letters can be addressed yep. to Will Bly. But isn't that the well, That's, that's thing, not a controversial thing to say. It is not. It is not an island based Will. on a turtle. You the, don't know that. The have you I do. I do know that. Have you looked under America? Have, yeah. have you looked under America? Not personally, no. There okay. you go. There you there go. You go. See, it's turtles all the way down, mate. Yeah, it is turtles all the way down. Okay, this week I am covering kilted wood violence <laughs> and I'm going to talk about the Battle of Aknashelik and the clans Mackay and Cameron. Ooh. And Mackay is spelt, by the way, M-A-C-K-A-Y and I'm going to pronounce it Mackay because I 
think that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> as opposed to McKay. As opposed to McKay, uh, which it could be pronounced as. Hopefully I'm right, 50-50. <laughs> and this was an era in Scotland in 1505 when the clans were... And, you know, and the clans are effectively Scottish family-based tribes, and they were dom- they dominated Scotland, uh, and each had large chunks of Scotland that they were uh, in control of, and they were vying for power con- continuously, mm. and they were also vying for power with the central Scottish royal family, and mm. then increasingly with the English, as the English tried to assert their power north of the border as well, and would come up and occasionally raiding and invading and dominating for a period of time, and then receding again south. And they're also wrestling with a lot of internal demons. Is that right? <laughs> we're, all, we're all vying for power within ourselves. What a fascinating psychological observation. Yes. yes. I think that's yeah. right. You're welcome. Yeah. Tell, tell us more. <laughs> so all I... these daddy issue Scots are... Uh... <laughs> no, I am... Um, I have achieved complete hegemony over myself. Ah, <laughs> oh, Good. First, before we come to the battle that will take place in 1505, I'll talk a little bit about the two clans themselves, Mackay and Cameron, who ended up battling. So first, Clan Mackay. This was, and and still is really, um, an ancient clan uh, from the far north of the Scottish Highlands, uh, but actually has its roots in the old Kingdom of Moray. And there were they were one of the clans who supported Robert the Bruce, during the wars of the of Scottish independence mm-hmm. in the 14th century. Mm. So, so that's a, sort of a couple of hundred years going on uh, before the time that we're talking about. And then the history of the clan is like, it's incredibly rich and deep. And this this particular one with Mackay has been really well documented and it's uh, highly nuanced. And there's a really good granular history available, and uh, which I can't, I can't do justice to here. But some of the highlights are that the first chief of the clan was a guy called I Mackay. I Mackay. <laughs> And he wow. was born in about 1210. And um, just a great name, really. That's a highlight. It's just a great name. <laughs> and then later on, the Mackays were amongst the clans, as I said, um, who supported Robert the Bruce. And they fought at Bannockburn. There was a whole gang of, uh, of the Mackays there fighting alongside him in, th- in 1314, which is one of the most famous battles during that period. And later on in the 14th century, in 1370, a neck... A, 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 Another guy called I Mackay. Uh, <laughs> All right, they're a little. Uh, I Mackay and you Mackay. <laughs> we Mackay. <laughs> we Mackay. <laughs> um, so he and his son were murdered at Dingwall Castle uh, oh, by. Sorry by, for making fun of you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by a guy called Nicholas Sutherland, uh, who was the head of one of the junior branches of Clan, Clan Sutherland. And then following that murder, so that's 1370, there was then just a huge amount of bloodshed, really, that kicked off a whole bunch of clan, clan feuds that sort of echoed down the, the, the decades. Mm. So Immediately afterwards, they did a retaliatory raid in 1372. They set the cathedral on fire in Dornoch and they killed a whole bunch of Sutherland men and hanged them in the town square. And that then kicked off um, the, a whole bunch of feuding. Yeah, and that feuding went on for really the next 400 years. Oh, oh my wow. God. <laughs> Basically. They held a grudge, huh? So they were very much still feuding in 1505. Yeah. And then on, on Clan Cameron's side, um, the origins of Clan Cameron are a bit more uncertain than with Clan Mackay. But, and there, there are a few theories. So traditionally... It is believed that her first movie was The Mask, right? In 1995. <laughs> what? Who, who is this? Who is this? Cameron Diaz. She, yeah, she's great. <laughs> Real good in Charlie's Angels. Yes. Or known by her more formal name, Clan, Clan Cameron. Clan Cameron. Clan Cameron. Clan yes. Cameron Diaz. 
So Cameron Diaz descended from the Danish pr- Danish <laughs> prince who assisted with the restoration of Fergus II. This is the traditional belief for where they come from. And so they, they, there's some people who think that they descend from this Danish prince and that their progenitor was a guy, it was called Cameron because of his crooked nose from the Scottish Gaelic Camshro. Mm. Uh, and then another possible origin is that Donald Doof, who was not Donald Duck, Donald Doof, okay. who was the first confirmed chief, uh, was just descended from another family that was called Cameron from Fife. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So that seems like a lot more likely. Do you know what frankly. Donald Doove means? Crooked beak? No, that- what does Donald Doove mean? Doove means black. Oh, does it? Yeah. In in Irish Gaelic or in, like, in Gaelic Gaelic. In Gaelic, any, Gaelic? Any Gaelic. All Gaelic is the same. Good enough for me. <laughs> Don't tell anyone that, but that's it's a secret. <laughs> Don't true, worry, good, we're, yeah, we're not recording a podcast. <laughs> we are experts. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometime around the beginning of the 15th century, or possibly a little bit earlier, the Camerons then established themselves by uh, the Great Glen, at the end of the western part of the Great Glen, Loch Aber. And so that puts them in the right rough geographical ballpark to then uh, be become rivals to clan Mackay. So they're sort of poised to be, to be fighting. Mm. And then and thereafter, uh, the battle itself, which, which took place a little bit north of that in 1505. So the battle itself was a climax of this ongoing feud between the two clans. They'd gone on for decades by this point. And, it's, and it's also, it was also part of a larger power struggle because one side, the Mackays supported the king, who was mm, there on the throne okay. at the time, Ooh. in Perth still, I'm going to say, probably was still Perth, I think. <laughs> We'll find out. I'll check that. Uh, if not, then Edinburgh and um, and the Camerons, who were very much like anti-king, so pro-king, anti-king. Were they vibes. anti-king in general, or they just wanted a different guy? Oh, they just wanted a different guy. Okay. Like more suited their clan. Yeah, they weren't yeah. like anarchists. They're all just out for themselves. Yeah. So um, we know what we know about the battle. Is not much, not much, not much. Is that we don't know much about the battle. <laughs> Damn it. No description of pikemen. <laughs> Were there pikemen? How many leopard tanks do they have? <laughs> Tell us about the flanking. <laughs> there were pikemen. Okay, so what we know is that it took place in an area that's still a very heavily forested area. In fact, there's still um, an Akhnashelik forest to this day, it's called that. And it's and that's where the battle took place. But it turns out neither clan did much writing down of exactly what happened, <laughs> okay. uh, which makes it kind of tough to work yeah. out yeah, yeah. what exactly went on. But we know that in the end, it resulted in this Cameron victory. Uh, so the, like, like the rebel side, effectively, mm-hmm. was, was won the thing. And we do have a bit of information. So Clan Munro was there uh, and they were on the side of the Mackays. So they were sort of like a sub-tribe, sm- not a sub-tribe, but a smaller tri- a smaller mm-hmm. clan on the, uh, on the side of the Mackays. And they recorded that 
Quote, Sir William Munro of Foulis was sent to Lockhaver on the king's business and was killed in an engagement between the Camerons and the Mackays at a place called Akinashelik. So, like, light on detail, but he was there, he died, we're good. Okay, so we're off to the races. Um, And then later accounts state that Munro's party was killed by Cameron and that, quote, the house was surrounded and refused to surrender. Ooh. Which is quite noble. Probably a lie, though. Probably just died in quite mundane circumstances. And then <laughs> uh, there's a bit of, there's a, there's a very small amount of de- further detail um, in out there. But, ger- but generally, as you go down through the centuries, the detail becomes more and more specific and less and less well-sourced. And, the, <laughs> and, and, and so the more recent accounts... Yeah, they had gazpacho soup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's really interesting. So like, I, having actually done a little bit of proper historical research really about this one Ooh. it looks like the if you look at anything contemporary and um, in the following 60 years there is zero detail yeah and then over time people have told stories about the thing yeah, and they've become became, more like, canonized exactly yeah and then and even in the last 20 years there's been some history written about the thing which is dubious yeah <laughs> so it, yeah, yeah it, i did think it was weird that they described uh the chief of clan cameron having a hello kitty backpack that's right <laughs> yeah <laughs> just doesn't seem to have made it to scotland by the 1500s whereas really it's a pokemon backpack <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so uh, as a result, I'm not going to go into, <laughs> I'm going to go through these like really dubious histories of the thing because it probably didn't happen. But really, all we know is the rebels won. It was really, really sad because obviously we we're always on the royal side in this podcast, no matter who <laughs> happens to be on the throne at any given time. And there wow. you have it. So the clans of Cameron and Mackay and the Battle of Akinashelak. <laughs> Okay, so. For my section, TikTok time. <laughs> it's about watches. Oh, quick question: Where do you think on your wrist were? Yes, <laughs> where do you think watches were invented? China. China. Venice. Venice. Germany. Oh. We get to talk about Germany again. Um, and it was invented in 1505. It's the first ever, ever, ever watch. Really? First ever watch, and it still exists. <gasps> No. And it's in this room. And it's in this room. When I say it, it, it is the first ever watch, we, of course, do not know that. And it may not be, but we think it is. And okay, we're pretty classic. sure. So, you know, we'll and what do you think the watch is called? Fancy name? I think it's called the watch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Clockenspiel. <laughs> it is called Watch 1505. Watch 1505. No. Or PHN 1505. Or maybe Pomodoro Watch of 1505. Pomodoro? So, Pomodoro. And we're going to talk about pom- Pomandor. We're going to talk about Pomandor in a bit. What does that mean? Interesting question. Oh, so not like Pomodoro. Not a Pomodoro, Pomandor. Yeah, okay. is that like tomato in yeah. Italian? Yeah. <laughs> well, it kind of does have similar etymological roots as the tomato, and we'll talk about that in a second. So it wasn't a watch. If somebody strapped a tomato it to their wrist. It tom- <laughs> exactly, was a tomato. This tomato will go off in three weeks. <laughs> exactly. At that just- point, replace tomato. <laughs> yeah, so you've got your time segments in, in, in Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Um, that's where we get the uh, Fortnite from. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, anyway, this was invented by a chap named Peter Henlein, who's at the epicenter of this journey. German Renaissance in Nuremberg. So Nuremberg is, you know, in its heyday at the time. It's on this corridor of of trade between Italy and and Germany. Uh, This quote of the time, very famous quote, which says, Nuremberg jokes and their frills 
are known throughout the world. So, yeah, uh, funny Germans and lots of frills. Yeah, because when you hear Nuremberg, uh, the first thing you changed. think of is jokes. Yeah, yeah. somewhat tainted, isn't it? Yeah, yeah a little bit tainted. For our generation. Anyway, yeah. Our mate, Peter H., he was a locksmith and was apprenticing in the locksmith's guild and then started dabbling in the new field of clockmaking. So uh, it was a rather exciting field. No guild at the time for it. It was just a sort of subset of, of others. Well, and they're you know, not as established as the pickle dealers. Not as established as the pickle dealers. Um, but lots of transferable skills between the two, obviously, um, because, you know, small, intricate parts, working with metal, experience with Excel, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> just general, like, just yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Um, a, qu- a quote from the time just about Peter as well. So every day they invent finer things. For example, Peter Hellnine, Still a young man, fashions works that even the most learned mathematicians admire. For from, from only a little iron, he makes clocks with many wheels, which, no matter how one might turn them, shows and chimes the hours for 40 hours without any weight, even when carried to the breast or in handbag. Oh. So some very nice review for him there. That's a great, That's I mean, five stars. Yeah, if you want to review our podcast in a similar <laughs> fashion, please do so. My, Note that my, we do also fit into your handbag. Yeah, and I also make very fine watches. Um, so... Nuremberg, absolute epicenter, as I said, and uh, they really love clocks. Boy, howdy, do they like their clocks. Okay. And there was a sort of fad of miniaturization of all these clocks. So you got like from, you know, church towers, then came the grandfather clock, Uh then came like, you know, the the table clock. Yeah. Then came, I guess. The digital alarm clock. The digital alarm (laughs) clock. And then came, I guess, like, I don't know, like a small, smaller one. Yeah. It's a little bit of like a Zeno's paradox thing. How how small can (laughs) it get? But there was apparently watch-like things at the time. Yeah. But I found a quote that says they were transitional in size between clocks and watches. (laughs) So it's probably just like a grandfather clock and a chain around people's necks. When did clocks, when were clocks invented? Clocks? Yeah. When were clocks invented? Yeah. That's a very good question. It's a really interesting question. I mean, traditionally you'd have a clockman who would follow you around with a a much smaller, more compact clock. Would he just hit a thing of of wood every second? Every second. second. that. Another guy would then count and then you have a third person who would turn at a 60 of a, of a circle right. every second right. and you would have to time uh, your picking of the tomato yeah. you would then pick up the tomato uh, exactly the great right. clockman procession exactly yeah. right so wealthy men would yeah yeah, yeah. have You'd entire crowds of these men yeah. um, uh, mechanical, first mechanical clocks were invented in Europe around the start of the 14th century yeah yeah, yeah. so 100 years of, of clock, okay. clockery and yeah. then watchery um, <laughs> 100 years of clockery so our boy Petey goes about crafting the first watch in the guise of a pomondor and a pomondor or pomondor amber is uh, was a metal ball, effectively, normally hung around the neck that contained perfumes and, like, odorous tinctures to ward Ooh. off diseases and pestilence or kind of, you know, just bad smells, right? Yeah. And they were normally quite ornate. They're almost like, like, almost like incense balls, effectively, but for perfumes, really. Okay. And, um... They were, you know, seen as a bit of a status symbol. Like, I'm so posh, I can afford to have this kind of apothecary device with me and all that kind of stuff. I can't afford to bathe, but I can still smell good. Exactly. Yeah. And so he fashioned it in this style and in a mix between sort of Germanic and Oriental influences. And it's very intricate. And uh, this was all made possible because the invention of the mainspring. So Mm. the mainspring is effectively a coiled, if you imagine a flat piece of metal that's coiled rather tightly and it's still one of the main features of automatic watches to this day Um, obviously the sort of 
the, the metallurgy has changed. This was in iron. It's probably in something better, like, I don't know, bronze. I'm not really sure. <laughs> the <laughs> finest metal in all the world. Why are you trying to, like, ad-lib metallurgy? I don't know anything. I just don't want to look like a fool. <laughs> and I think I've played it off just perfectly. No one expects you to. <laughs> you have succeeded. Anyway, so <laughs> he also leveraged a bunch of invented things around this time, like the torsion pendulum uh, and, and like other watchy things sure sure um, but he combined them in, in very novel ways and intricately and miniaturized them uh, to make this precision watch effectively and it kept time pretty pretty well um and it consisted of effectively two small half spheres joined by a hinge and when you opened it up there was another half sphere inside underneath that and on that inner sphere they had a dial that had both roman numerals at for the the hours of the day and then arabic numerals for the hours of the night and that sort of Mm. shows a point in history of this transition between roman numerals and arabic numerals yeah because they're you know that one was waning and the other was waxing yeah interesting yeah um and it's ornately engraved uh, with sort of scenes from Nuremberg itself mm. uh, and it had other symbols like laurel wreaths and serpents, etc. And it was silver and copper with the movements were all in iron. And it had engraved in it a Latin phrase. Um, sorry. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> God. Uh, Dude, me. Oh, you're you are off to such a strong start. Dude, the most Latin syllable. Okay, of it's all. it's DVT, which I think is deuce. <laughs> dude, me fugient. <laughs> I know scamar. Oh, now I understand what you mean. I've never studied Latin. Can you tell? What? Do me fugit. Do me fugit agno scamar. You sound like a Sims character. (laughs) So, yeah. So, um, well, what that that means in the English, I can can definitely pronounce. Uh That means um, time will escape me, but I will recognize it. Or words that affect kind of thing. So, Duke me fugit. Stop saying it. <laughs> uh, the, the the watch had a really interesting journey because it it was known to have existed. It was known to have been invented, but it was lost to time until it showed up in a flea market in London Ooh. in 1987. Oh, yes, very recently. Wow. And it wow. was an antique seller, and a then he sold it to it to to someone, and it passed it through a couple of owners who didn't really know what it was, didn't know its worth or history. Until 2002, when a private collector who had it sort of recognised it as something of intrinsic value, uh, had purchased it and he properly appraised it. And they found the hallmarks of PH in it, so Peter, and they dated then to 1505 with the with the, the metal in it and, and the, the style and all the rest and found signatures of Henlein himself. The watch was then estimated to be valued at between 50 and 80 million dollars. Wow. Dang. So the next time you're at a flea market... Buy a watch. Buy a watch, man. That's amazing. Yeah, so, re- I mean, it is the first watch. Yeah. Um, Peter Henlein then went on in his time to make some other, wa- like, lots of other pom- Pomodoro watches, and he also made Nuremberg Eggs, which is, like, just a bit of... A bit of <laughs> Bit no of follow up. Bit of avocado, <laughs> paprika. No, it's basically it's a watch just shaped like an egg. Oh, okay. It's an egg okay. watch. Okay. It's novelty type thing. It's Edible? Like, 
Not edible. Okay. I mean, it is probably actually. Anything's edible I, I, if you I reckon, try hard yeah, I reckon enough. you could. Um, I would not fancy trying to pass any form of clockwork. I yeah. think that would be a bad time. <laughs> um, uh, but that was worn around the neck. You obviously you wear eggs around the neck. We all know this. Obviously, yeah. yeah. Um, but he, you know, this guy, genius, he was the first person to take the idea of a clock and make it so that you could wear it on your person. Nice. Um, we th- I mean, we think, right? There could be yeah. someone else well, in yeah. the mix then. But that's what we, we attribute to him. And that is Peter Henlein and the invention of the watch. Dupe that's me fugit. wonderful. <laughs> Dupe me fugit. <laughs> well, uh, as you've all noticed, the doot me has fugented <laughs> and we are out of time. But thank you so much for joining us. That's everything you'd ever need to know about the year 1505. So, Will, please, can you boot up the random number generator and give us the next year? Absolutely. Just give me a moment to attach the ceremonial kilt to <laughs> the random number generator. Put a little tam shanter on its head. Yeah. It doesn't have a head. Well, of course it doesn't have a head. <laughs> It's ethereal. <laughs> and next week's year is... 61. <laughs> and, and the rest of the number. Six. No, no more numbers. Is it sandwiched between a one and no, another? No, there's okay. no sandwich. It's just filling. Just. Six one. <laughs> no sandwich, just filling. Oh, that should God. be the tagline of this podcast. Do me fusion. This is going to be a We've tough We've been fusioned pretty hard there. We have. Oh, well. 61. I mean, look, we've got Romans to fall yep, back on can't, here. Yep, can't wait Absolutely. to hear what the Romans were up to. <laughs> here we go again. <laughs> Amazing. All right, we'll see you then. Bye. <laughs>